The following program is brought to you by the University of Alabama. So thank you so much. It is a tremendous privilege. Thank you, Jim, for the great introduction and for all the chaperoning today and the fabulous conversations I got here uh, and started at 8.15 this morning. So, um, you know, hopefully I can remember all this stuff. I'm kidding. Um, it is a privilege because, you know, New College had a great effect on my life, obviously, and um, I've ministered to many, many people about how important it is to follow your own path, choose the best you can, um, the various types of, you know, control your own education, control your own path, and New College was a great way to do that um, at the University of Alabama, and so I was lucky to have found it. And um, I hope that everybody has the privilege of having that sort of education um, and would like to see it grow. So what I want to talk to you about today, first of all, I don't want to give a lecture to you. I'm not a big fan of the classroom style, as New College has taught me. Um, and would very much like to have a conversation. And I encourage you that if you want to interrupt me at any point in time, please do that. Um, only have about 20 slides so that I don't, uh, they're all, you know, they've got data on them, all of them. But um, I don't want to drag us down too far. I want to stay at a very high level of conversation so that um, if you have questions about what I'm speaking about that you can ask them easily. So just raise your hand and let me know and I'll, I'll uh, answer anything you have um, to ask me. So um, I'm just now returning and had just moved back around Thanksgiving um, from being in the, in the DC, greater DC area for 10 years. Um, and at that entire time being at Research America, um, which is an organization whose mission is to uh, make research to improve health a higher national priority. And when you think about policy, um, ultimately policy is driven by funding. Priorities are funding. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Unfortunately, everything's about um, what you're investing uh, your funds in. And I believe strongly um, and know that this is true and see it um, constantly exhibited um, at the federal level and at the state level and the local level, that this is the most important political office. Unfortunately, in this country, we do not always um, act on this privilege. Um, and it would be a wonderful thing to have that change um, and not just be from the minorities of people who have very strong voices, but the majority of, you know, there's a silent majority, if you will, in this country that um, is very busy doing their jobs and not necessarily talking about what they think is important. Um, so what we did in order to get that uh, information was a lot of public opinion research um, on topics that don't normally get asked about. And this is a very good example, which is how important people think R&D is to their local economy. And you can see that overwhelmingly, um, people do believe it is important. Also, for job creation and incomes. Um, this is not an issue that comes up in elections necessarily, right? How much money you're investing in uh, research and development, uh, which is a private and a public investment, both sides uh, investment, and a philanthropic investment, as a matter of fact. Um, but you can clearly see how supportive people are. STEM education, another very good example. Um, people do get why this is important. You know, they want to be able for their children to be able to compete, um, not just here, but globally. But here's the problem. Once again, like I said, it doesn't come up. It's not something people talk about enough. Um, it is a, it is something that the vast majority of people don't have a great deal of information about. Their members of Congress aren't necessarily talking about it unless they are champions of that particular issue. And in Congress, people are champions of an issue if they oversee that budget. So once again, you know, someone's inclination to be supportive is directly tied to whether or not it's inside their control. Um, in this state, <laughs> Oh, you know what? Let me go back. I do want to say, and I'll get to him later, but in this state, we now have Senator Shelby, who has ascended, if you will, or been given the ranking position on the Labor, Health, and Human Services and Education Committee, which decides all the money for 
the National Institutes of Health, um, all the health agencies, including CDC, AHRQ, which is the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, um, also obviously the education budget. Um, this is a major bill. It's a major appropriations portion of our budget. Um, and I'm going to talk about a little more about the budget in a minute. But, you know, Congress is actually part of, or not just Congress, but elected officials in general, are actually part of why a lot of people don't participate <laughs> in politics. Um, and I can tell you that I didn't know a whole lot when I moved um, to D.C. I was coming out of this world. This is the answer or response to one of the questions on my qualifying exam. And these are, these are some of the signal, signaling pathways that I was studying in airway epithelia, which I'm sure you all know what that is. Um, but I had to draw this. This is my first attempt at, you know, it was part of my dissertation, part of a paper I published. But then when I went to D.C. and looked at the process that you have to go through to get how the budget gets decided, how appropriations are allocated, it looked a whole lot like that very complicated pathway that seems so mysterious to anybody who wasn't educated specifically on that topic, who didn't have that as the concentration of their everyday life. And that's exactly the problem. In order to be effective, people are very intimidated by the process that goes on, and you will be given all kinds of you know, answers and responses. I know that my family regularly writes to their congressional delegation, regularly reaches out, tells them what they think, and they get back form letters um, that are, you know, in many ways very discouraging. So what, you want, what we wanted to accomplish is to try to get beyond this, right? And Research America's goal was to affect every step of the process as effectively as we possibly could. Now, in Senator Shelby's new position, and he has just become, like I said, the ranking member of the committee that decides funding for the National Institutes of Health in particular, and I'm going to use that as my example, the National Institutes of Health. This is a statement that he made, opening statement he made at a hearing for the Secretary, for the secretary of the Health and Human Services Department, uh, Secretary Sebelius. And this is the most positive thing <laughs> that we've seen in a while, and it's great. And if it comes along with actual support you know, that he champions the NIH, um, that will be a huge coup um, over people, you know, in a, in a time where fiscal conservativeness is not being selective. You know, I think right before he said, made this statement, what he said was, you know, cutting across the board, which is what the proposal is from a, a large portion of um, folks on the House side, the House of Representatives, cutting across the board is not smart. That's not how you manage a budget. You selectively cut what is not necessarily giving you a large return on investment. This, the National Institutes of Health, though, however, is. And the money that comes into this state from the National Institutes of Health is $250 million as of last year. That's a significant portion. By the way, the entire state budget is only $5.2 in this in this state. So that tells you the kind of impact. It has approximately a $1.2 billion impact um, because the jobs that come out of R&D generate jobs for coffee shops, <laughs> you know, literally, restaurants in the area at universities. Um, you, know, you, you know what's built up around this university because of the investment that's being made here. So let's talk a little bit about the budget. You know, these numbers are so large that most people have no concept of what it really means. When somebody hears, well, we're going to invest $2 million in this new whatever, they think that's a lot of money. And, and, and honestly, it is to an individual or, a, you know, maybe a city or something like that. $2 million is a lot. But it's not in the grand scheme of things. So this is 2010's federal tax receipts. And what you see here is $2.2 trillion coming in from various sources. There's a lot of misperception about where the, you know, who's paying what, who's putting forth the money. And you can see how that's divided up. SSI is Social Security, you know, what's coming out of your payroll, the taxes that come out of your payroll. Um, and look at corporate, because there's a great deal of conversation right now in D.C. about reducing corporate burden. 
And I, I would argue that, you know, 9% is not a large portion of our overall um, federal income. Here's the spending, and here's where we get in trouble because, of course, we're spending more than we're bringing in. Um, but we're not going to talk about that piece of it. That's just a fact. Okay? <laughs> not something I'm going to necessarily get into right now. But what's happening, and what you hear about, I hope, on the news, is that the only piece that anybody's talking about is right here. And that discretionary piece, everything else is mandated, and, and takes, it can be changed by legislation. It can be altered. But it takes a very different process than just the regular budget and appropriations that happen every single year. That discretionary piece is everything, and I mean everything related to health and education and community. It's every single thing that you can possibly imagine or think about that's a program to improve health and education. Um, so that's not very much, that's not a big piece of the pie. And so if you really want to think about reducing the federal debt or the federal deficit, which are different things, but if you really want to talk about reducing it, you really can't stick to that little piece of the pie. And that's actually the piece of the pie that invests in the U.S. I mean, it really is. That's the piece where we're investing in ourselves. NIH is in that piece, by the way, the National Institutes of Health that I spoke of earlier. So in order to fulfill the mission at Research America, if you want to ask for something, you actually have to know where you start, right? So a big part of what I tried to accomplish there was to make it a data-driven type process, where when you went in to talk about how important it was to increase the investment of federal health research, that you knew where you were at that moment. Now, that's a complicated story because the, the investment into health research is public and private. And the private investment is not quite as easy to capture. Um, so over the decade um, that we were doing this work, um, we did, you know, refine that process and become, uh, create a better methodology for actually discovering those numbers. So what you can see here is that industry and government are the big payers, for sure. Industry and government are the big investors. Um, and for all the wonderful conversation about how valuable um, philanthropy is and private money is, that is, it is wonderful. It is absolutely wonderful. It can never accomplish um, at the same level what government funding and, and, you know, corporate funding can accomplish. It'll never be that big. Now, part of um, what was useful was to compare that to the overall health dollar. And the health dollar is um, private and public, what we spend in this country uh, per capita, per family on health care. And it's not just health care, though. It's research and everything else is rolled into it. So what we were able to determine, and you can see in, um, you know, not so long ago, we were spending barely 3% or right at 3% um, of the overall investment in health care or overall what we're paying out for health care. Um, on the solutions, and that's what I think of when I think of health R&D, is how do you solve the health problems that you're facing? And the vast majority of money spent on health care is spent in the last two years of someone's life. And what we've done is we've been able to extend life, which is absolutely fabulous, but the number of chronic diseases that anybody has at the end of their life um, costs a great deal of money. And so what we now have to do is get over that hump to where people are living longer but a higher quality of life, where they stay well for longer. And that's actually where a lot of health R&D is focused. But you can see we're still only spending, we're spending less than six cents on the dollar and paying all of our money out here at the back end. I mean, that's where our money is. And so the smart thing, it would seem, right, would be to invest more in the ideas about how to not have to pay that money down here at the end. People would be well longer, more productive. Now, some of the arguments are that death is cheaper. 
that, you know, the sooner you die, and that's the problem with Social Security and Medicare. And that actually comes up, if you can believe it. That's an actual argument that um, people live too long. But instead of saying they live too long, because we're not going to give up on living, right, <laughs> is to now let's say, let's be well for as long as we possibly can and be as productive as possible. And the breakdown of the health care dollar uh, looks a little bit like this. So you have hospital care, you have, um, you know, services, prescription drugs, nursing home, administration, all that. This is everything else. And this is dentistry and everything else in here, but R&D is in this little pie, piece of the pie, too. So at the state level and at the, at the national level, we asked people, what do you think is appropriate? You know, we try to give them something that they can understand. So we'll say, we spend right now less than six cents of every health dollar on research to hopefully better prevent, treat, and cure disease. So that's how much we're spending now. How much do you think we should spend? Instead of telling them that NIH gets $30 billion a year, because anybody would say to that, that's a lot of money. But in relationship to what we spend on healthcare, it's not a lot of money. So you can see here that 70% of people think we should spend more than that. Now, how do you translate that to action? You know, having the information and knowing that this is the way people feel is very different from having an impact on the process and making that change. So, in order to try um, to move the ball, if you will, down the field, um, one of the things that we put into place were, were two initiatives called Your Candidates, Your Health. We did it for the first time in 6000, 2006, excuse me, and Your Congress, Your Health, which we did um, in alternating fashion. Between elections, we would do Your Congress, Your Health. <clears throat> and what we did was send candidates who were running for Congress a questionnaire, very short, very easy, um, asking them questions about the issues obviously related to research and related to health. Now, we got a great response because it's actually very hard to get candidates, especially those candidates who don't have any opposition. The ones you're going to get some kind of response for have a fight on their hands. They need better exposure. Perhaps they don't have a whole lot of money to campaign. There are different reasons why people respond to these. But we got some great, you know, a very high level of response, actually, considering it was our first year out. Now, I want you to notice the red states, because <laughs> this is where nobody answered us. And here's, here's, here's the state I love, right? Um, and as we go ahead, I'll, I'll, that continues to be the case. They're completely unresponsive um, to anyone because uh, they don't need to be. They really don't need to be. They're very safe in their seats, um, and there's no real challenge for them. So the 112th Congress. After um, 2006, the 111th Congress, and 2008, which was a presidential election, which got a lot more attention. By the way, President o or now President Obama, Obama was the very first person to respond to our 2008 initiative. Very science um, aggressively supportive of science, um, which was great to, to hear. Um, and we got a very strong response in those initiatives. So by the time we got to the 112th Congress, which is the current Congress, we have 170 members out of 535 actually on the record. At one stage or another along, and this is all online, and you can see it. Uh, so every person who's in Congress has links to the past responses. And this is at least a knowledge base for people who, you know, in the past have said that they don't have any information or don't know that much about where their, their representatives stand on these issues. Now, continue to look at no one on the record is here still. And for a state that gets as much research money as we get, that's pretty astounding. And what it says is that somehow they're not feeling pressured in any way to be responsive to that issue locally. We'd like to see, the, I'd like to see that changed. 
And I don't know how much you know about what we invest overall and how we've been successful economically, you know, um, in many ways as a country. Um, but after World War II, President Roosevelt hired the first science advisor, appointed the first science advisor. And he put into place something I'm going to show you in a, little, in a few minutes, um, a report, or he reported on why um, it would be so valuable to translate all of our military uh, investments, those, the types of investments we had to make in order to succeed in World War II, and translate that domestically. So make that a domestic agenda to apply to our citizenry. And the goal was 3% of GDP, to be investing at least 3% of GDP. We've been quite a bit below that for quite some time now. Um, we're at around 2.7 right now. The countries like China and India, and you can see Fareed Zakaria, I don't know how many people know who he is, um, but obviously has a very global perspective. Um, and his point to me rings true <clears throat> for sure, which is why are we thinking so small? That's yesterday. You know, China is investing. India is, you know, every country that can do it is emulating what we did in the 1940s and 50s to get, you know, to generate the kind of um, ideas, innovation that we did to create the industries that really drive our economy. And so this is, um, this is a little bit of an excerpt from the report that I was talking about. Vannevar Bush was the first science advisor and um, Franklin D. Roosevelt appointed him after World War II. And you can see nothing, everything that he said is still valid today. You know, that's what's interesting is it hasn't really changed at all um, to bring higher standards of living, you know, to actually translate um, our ideas into something real and productive. You have to continue to invest. It's just like a company. You have to invest in the next thing. And we are not doing that as effectively as we once did. So what we believe at Research America and what I believe myself personally is that the only way to change that is to take action. Um, this is Research America's call for 2011. I don't know if you guys know this, but 2011 budget process is not over yet. You know, it's supposed to be over October of last year, <laughs> and it's still not over. And they haven't started 2012. And it's all supposed to be decided, you know, the year in advance. And there are a lot of games they play. Uh, there's a lot of these continuing CRs. Do you all know, have you heard about that? The continuing resolutions that they're doing um, and the possible government shutdown. All of that's around the budget and appropriations process. Um, but before all that got underway at the beginning of the year, um, we were calling for this, these levels of investment. And they're all based on whether, you know, essentially what the community thinks is appropriate to be invested in those agencies, what the president has recommended perhaps in his budget. Um, and the $35 billion for the National Institutes of Health is rooted in the fact that for the stimulus, there was an additional $10 billion allocated on top of the $30 billion um, that was appropriated. And that was spread out over two years. So in 2009 and 10, the effective budget of the National Institutes of Health was $35 billion. We were like, you know, that may have been stimulus funding. It may have been one-time funding. But the thing you don't want to do is go backward. The last thing you want to do is bring in new scientists, young investigators, and then cut them off at the knees um, right after they've gotten their first um, little bit of you know, money to run their lab, if you will. And that actually is where we are now, is we're in a place where we are not supporting the next generation of investigators. We are not necessarily, we are going to lose a tremendous amount of human capital um, if we continue to hold steady. And these are not huge amounts of money. And so the point is that trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars will get spent no matter what happens in Washington. No matter how much they fight over it, no matter how much they tell you they're going to cut the budget, they will spend $3 trillion at least on this budget, right? So what's the priority? You have to, and that's a decision that has to be made, and there are a lot of pieces of that pie. And to inform yourself and better understand, we share this information to try to alleviate, if you will, um, the burden of having to do that. 
uh, because not everybody can be an expert, obviously, on the federal budget and appropriations. An interesting fact that I saw today, um, and I knew this was the case, Alabama ranks very high in the return of our tax dollars back to the state. So um, we, for every dollar each of us puts in in taxes, federal taxes, we get back uh, over $2, so like two twenty or so, and we rank about seventh in the country for that, which means that a lot more of what we're invest, you know, what we invest, a lot more of it comes back to us than doesn't. Um, and it's not something I think most people are probably aware of for all the let's don't have any taxes. <laughs> this economy, Alabama's economy, would be in dire straits without um, the universities. Yeah. Who's first? Mississippi. They're always right above us. No. We're number seven, fact. We're seventh, actually, and I don't know who all's in between, um, but a friend of mine dug that information up today and shared it. Anybody else? No. It was so clear that you don't have a single question. Well, all I can say is thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, sorry, Carl. I think NIH is pro will probably be saved. I, I mean, there there are a lot of boots on the ground trying to make that happen. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's an online petition actually right now to to protect um, NIH funding. And even though the House recommended a 1.6 billion dollar cut, there's no way. And and that's why Senator Shelby's statement was so powerful. He's now in charge of that. That's now his money. And so now that he's sort of taken possession of that, he's going to probably protect it to um, the greatest of his ability. And so I can't imagine it getting cut by the Senate or the president. The president also has a very strong commitment to science. Um, but it's all in the bargaining in the end. You know, people make deals. I don't know how many of you know that the NIH budget got doubled. Does everybody know what the NIH is? Totally know what it is? Yeah. So the NIH was doubled. Um, between, and by the way, at a time when we were told that they were cutting budgets, that, you know, things were horrible, <laughs> that financially we just couldn't afford anything, um, they started to double it in 1998 and went through 2003. So it went from a $13 billion agency to, uh, you know, a $26 billion agency in that time frame, um, which, you know, grew science in this country, and especially as it focused on health. You mean the National Institutes of Health in particular or overall? Yeah. So, you know, research and development by its very nature is long term. I mean, you know, but there are crises. I mean, you know, there are crises. Things like um, HIV AIDS, you know, politically. Um, but there are patient groups. The patient community is part of Research America. And there are patient groups that are very effective in advocating breast cancer. Um, HIV AIDS had 11% of the NIH budget at one time, which is a huge portion. Um, and, you know, those things are politically driven, right? Um, but, but there was good reason why HIV AIDS should have had a greater investment after it had been ignored for a certain period of time altogether. Um, and they do move money around according to you know, if you think about the diseases people die from, there's a mortality and morbidity sort of health statistics, if you will. The, primary, the number one killer in this country of, of all of us um, is heart disease or some form of cardiovascular disease. But that doesn't get the largest investment. It doesn't always go, you know, exactly that way. Um, so there are other things like health care reform when they come down the pipe where you want to make sure that health reform doesn't happen without considering the research piece of it. And so we tackled that as aggressively as we possibly could. Um, in the health reform package, they had something called comparative effectiveness research, um, which got very hot for a little while. Um, but I can tell you industry doesn't much like it because what it does is compare 
different types of treatments. And so if you've got two pills that do approximately the same thing and you compare them, then there's only going to be coverage through Medicare and insurance companies of one. That's what the, the comparative effectiveness would achieve. And, you know, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies who are all doing that kind of work are not interested in that sort of selectiveness, you know. Um, so it, it's, it's a short-lived. There's a small investment in it, but it, it won't go too far. They've been able to kill it every time it came up. Does that answer your question? I mean, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, now it's a committee. So it's something called PCAST, which is the Presidential Committee on Science and Technology. And, um, you know, it has, in this administration, it's got more teeth than it did in the Bush administration. Um, and they are driven, they're controlled to a certain extent. It's not that they won't give their advice, they certainly will. But they do fit into the agenda of whoever they're serving to a certain extent. So, you know, I think one of the issues, and I think you've tapped into something that's really important, there's not visibility in this country of scientists. The voice of scientists is not, are not heard, um, which is really unfortunate. So some of the public opinion research we do is asking people, can they name a living scientist? And the person who gets the most votes is Einstein. So, you know, uh, they may come up with Bill Gates, you know, but these are tiny percentages. The vast majority of people have no clue. Um, and that's a failure, actually, of the scientific community itself. And it's a lot of the work that we did at Research America trying to figure out how to get scientists to communicate the value of what they do in their community. Because if they were doing that and perhaps talking to their congressional member um, in a way that was useful, not in a way that was harassing, but in a way that was useful, um, we could probably have a much larger impact. I mean, the scientific community is still not ready to engage fully um, in the policy setting process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's so many things. The chairman of uh, Research America um, is uh, John Porter, the Honorable John Edward Porter, who was the head of the Labor, Health, and Human Services Committee on the House side for 20 years. And he started doub the doubling of the NIH budget. And one of the things he's very big on is run for office. Can we have some scientists in Congress, please? That would be very helpful, right? Um, and it really would. There are only four PhDs in all of Congress right now. Um, and, yeah. And they're not in any of the fields, you know, they're physicists usually, is uh, because the American Physical, Physicist Society has done a really good job, Physics Society, excuse me, has done a really good job of recruiting those people. Um, I have participated in an organization called Science and Engineering, Science, Scientists and Engineers for America, and they're trying to cultivate people who will run locally. There are quite a number of physicians, which a lot of people think of as a scientist, but they were recruited actually from, on the conservative base to try to oppose social issues. Um, so they're, they're opposed to embryonic stem cell research. They're opposed to abortion. I mean, you know, there's a lot of issues that they're sort of socially involved in. So they come across as, you know, of course, they're health professionals, and they come across as, you know, people who should be listened to, but they actually cause or have caused us, the community, quite a bit of trouble <laughs> because it's just antithetical um, to what it means to pursue knowledge. Um, the other things are, you know, advising candidates, you know, locally. I know, you know, I think the, the distaste that, a lot of academicians and scientists in academia have for politics is felt in their communities. And it doesn't matter how insane you think somebody is who's running for Congress, they're going to be representing you. You know, if they're up there telling, you know, you know voting and, and talking about your state, you want to be well represented. I don't think it matters what level you're talking about, um, whether it's the state legislature, local politics. You know, at your school that your kids go to, you certainly wouldn't let them put, hopefully, you would fight um, creationism being taught, you know, um, in the science class. I mean, you, hopefully that would be the case. Um, and so, but we don't do that right now. Scientists generally don't do that. And they don't talk to 
They don't communicate what they do to their own family and friends a lot of times. They don't to, so that those people are influenced and will think about those issues. Um, I will say that it took me a little while when I was in graduate school to figure out how we were funded. It wasn't like they sat me down when I first got into the lab and said, now I was writing grants, but they didn't say, here's where, you know, here's how it works. Here's, here, you ought to be involved. You actually hear the opposite a lot of times at institutions is that, well, I'm getting those federal dollars and I really shouldn't, you know, I sh I'm not allowed to talk about it or whatever. And you're like, that's absolutely not true. As a private citizen, you must engage or you should engage, um, especially as someone who's considered as scientists are highly respected in their communities. Now, I think a lot of scientists are fearful that if they come out from behind their wall, <laughs> they won't be so respected. And that's part of the issue, too. I mean, it's a cultural problem. Yeah, yeah. We don't know the people doing the science a lot of times, you know. Uh, people know that it's valuable. They accept just, um, you know, innovation. You can say that word and everybody's like positive about innovation, absolutely, without question. And But if you ask people where research is happening in their own state, if you ask them where research is happening in the country, vast majority. Uh, Massachusetts, this is a great example. In Massachusetts, 60% of the people in Massachusetts couldn't name a single place where research was happening. Now think about Massachusetts, MIT, you know, Harvard, the Boston Eight. I mean, you know, there's so much research happening there. They've got the second most money in the whole entire country behind California. So that just goes to show you, you know, if they're not even communicating effectively in a state like Massachusetts, where, where their economy, what their economy is being driven by, you can imagine we're not doing it very well here, right? Well, you know, I had the same problem when I first started, you know, doing that kind of, sort of asking these questions. The problem with asking a simplistic question like that where everybody says, well, of course everybody says yes, you know, because they don't really, do, you know, they, it just sounds good. And that's true to a large extent. But we asked it at the state level and the federal level over and over and over again, you know, to these populations. First of all, the consistency and say that, you know, this wasn't, this is really representative of what's going on. But... I can tell you that you, if you don't ask the simple question, you can't ask her the harder question. So these all evolve, you know, throughout the surveys that we do, and it was a whole building up of a database to understand better the collective, you know, opinion of the American people about, about this issue. People do now know, it has a much higher profile now, R&D does, has a much higher profile than it used to 10 years ago. Um, but of course people are going to say, I want to invest in cures for cancer. There's nobody who's going to say hardly. Some people will say no to everything. But there's very few people that will say no to that kind of deal. But if you don't ask the question, you can't prove that that's true. So you're sort of stuck where you do have to ask the simplistic question. Yeah. So, I mean, you told on trade-off questions, and I'm struck by the slide yeah. with the percentage of um, the research dollar compared to the overall health cost. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So has there been polling done to say um, we could do what, four times the research in in basic health research if yeah. um, you know, we were a country that was much more invested in preventative care than we are in Yes. Yes. And your Congress and your, your Congress and your candidates both ask those questions not only of the people running for office and the people serving in Congress, but asked it of the general public too. So you can literally compare their answers online like that. So that was with health reform. So we specifically... Right. Well, we, we actually have questions where they say they will pay more tax dollars. If they know it's going to this, you know, it's very different than asking people, and that will fluctuate, but it never goes below 50%. Um, which in these days is, is better than you need to get elected, right? <laughs> so people say they will pay an extra dollar for every prescription drug if they know for sure that the money will go. That's the clincher. I mean, you sort of have to say that, that it'll go to this, you know, to this, to this purpose. Um, so now that in reality is always different. I don't want to, you know, sugarcoat this and act like this is, you know, that, that what people say in an opinion poll is something they would actually follow through on. 
because I don't necessarily know that that's true. I will say, however, that after reading all, you know, after studying that, and that's what that paper addresses in many ways, um, I'm fairly convinced that if people understood more about it, that they actually would make it a major issue for them, for their candidates, you know, in the for the candidates running for Congress who decide that money. Mm -hmm. None of that's going to matter unless folks culturally wrestle with larger questions about whether or not we can, we can afford, as a nation, mm -hmm. to extend folks' lives yeah. endlessly and, and keep them. I mean, right? Ultimately, nobody wants to talk about whether or not you're fewer than a time. Yeah. Talk about whether or not um, you, know, you can provide X techno technology to grandma to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and this goes beyond Research America's polling. I mean, we, we, we limit ourselves to a certain, you know, uh, number of topics. And, um, however, um, after watching the health reform debate and listening to all the public opinion polling that was done by Gallup and Pew and all because we paid attention to all of that as well and tracked all of that. Um, It's a survival instinct, I think. People want to live almost no matter what. That's what I got <laughs> out of it. And um, we're going to just have to get beyond that. You know, we're going to live longer, right? Um, so now that we live longer, uh, the goal should probably be to live better, right. to live more healthy right. longer. Because um, there's. Well, they already are, actually. Tobacco tax is pretty high. That's one of the few things we're willing to do. Um, you know, I think you probably see the advertising. I don't know how many of you see it from uh, the soda companies and the fast food companies on Sunday, because CBS Sunday Morning is one of my favorite shows, and they advertise pretty heavily right around those shows about how uh, corn syrup is just as good as any other kind of sugar, you know, or <laughs> whatever it is that they're talking about um, and talking about it's it's wrong to take sugar drinks out of schools and you know it is we have this thing about freedom that we think is freedom you know that is very challenging to get around you know I, I obesity is costing us a tremendous amount um, and making us more unhealthy actually and for the first time public health folks will tell you that we have the possibility of this you know the next generation coming up they will not live as long that they actually will die earlier. It's just new problems. It's just different problems. We solved a lot of the acute death problems. So I try to remind the congressional members when I go speak to them, I was like, you know, if it weren't for heart disease research, you wouldn't be here. You know, because the vast majority are over 60, you know, and male. You know, not that women don't have heart disease issues too. As a matter of fact, quite a few congressional members, women had those, suffered from those problems recently. Right. Right. We do we do ranking questions, but not as much trade off questions. Trade off is a little more difficult um, uh, or challenging, if you will. Um, Ranking questions, though, will say, okay, where do you rank more tax cuts versus, you know, more health research? Um, so we do that. We give them in, you know, online in particular, it's much easier. And if you don't know this, opinion research is moving away from telephones um, to online um, almost exclusively uh, because, you know, the way that our phones is, we don't have phones anymore. <laughs> we don't have, it's not as easy to reach people. People stopped answering. <laughs> so, um, 
they are going online and so there is sometimes data given to people but you have to be careful because one of the things you don't want to do is lead people down a primrose path because it's very easy to do that um, and it's like anything else you can extract what you want and in opinion research what you see is a lot of conflict people can are conflicting even in their own responses inside the same single poll and and the best example of that um, which I think you hear on a regular basis is do not I want smaller government I don't want to pay any more taxes but don't you dare take away all of the things that are happening in my community you know I mean how many of us would actually be able to handle it if Medicare and Social Security were not around you know how many of us would be taking financial care of our mothers and fathers and grandparents I mean it's a collective effort <laughs> and it has to be right so you trying to to get reason out of opinion research is not a good idea what you're trying to get at is understanding trying to understand a little bit the mentality what types of um, words and messages resonate with people what are they responding to and that way you can speak you know to them in that way focus groups are are a different kind of way to accumulate information about people and those focus groups are more qualitative research is what they call it um, and those are the, one of the most fascinating experiences if you haven't ever done anything like that you should um, but you get a real sense of um, how very different opinions are in our in our uh, nation which is good um, but can be a real challenge right to get around mm -hmm. <laughs> No. No. So that's an actually really important point. Health. Um, we it, we did uh, quite a bit something on something called bridging the sciences, which is about cross disciplinary and how important it is for the various. Because you know the human genome project would have never happened or been successful without mathematical computation. I mean you know all these different uh, disciplines that came to bear on being able to first of all accumulate that information and process that information. Um, and the technology that went into producing it. So what you get, though, um, is that science is not as compelling to people. People don't really know what science is in, in a lot of instances. Um, we've talked a lot about that today, actually. And um, they may not have had exposure um, to what science can provide the value. Once again, the community is not speaking about it regularly to a public um, you know they just don't have an interaction with them um, health is something that everybody appreciates wants deals with every day um, so as, as it relates to health they that's what they talk about when they talk about science they don't talk about as much let's say space exploration or energy research it all sounds great and wonderful um, but it doesn't affect their lives as directly as health does um, well, I think you've witnessed the climate change debate, um, which um, the so what the public has stopped believing that climate change is real in this country. They have been convinced that it is not happening, and every survey says that. Um, ABC News, Washington Post, Pew, Gallup—they all say the same thing on a very downward trend, and that's really unfortunate. But once again, it's a failure of a community that sort of won't necessarily stand together, be aggressive, and be forceful. And sometimes when they do, they get slapped down like that, too. I think people just don't want it to be true, <laughs> right? The nuance, yeah. Right. 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 It's hard for scientists Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I think in the media, for instance, I think we mentioned this um, earlier, one of the problems is that um, to be a good journalist, you have to get both sides of every issue. And a lot of times in science, there is not another side. You know, this is what the, the, the vast majority of us agree to and what the, what the research says. Um, and um, this is where we are in our knowledge level. Um, and the people who are disagreeing are disagreeing for reasons that have nothing to do with science. Um, they have to do with politics. Uh, but they get as big a voice as the vast majority. And that's what I mean by the silent majority in a lot of ways. You know, you have this very vocal minority and often a very silent majority. And there are ways to get around your point. I mean, I totally appreciate the point you're making. And people are very hesitant to say, yes, we'll cure cancer in 10 years or something like that, you know. But actually, a lot of cancers have been cured. But we don't talk about that enough. You know, we don't tell, you know, there's a, a, the American Cancer Society right now is concentrating very hard on talking about how many different cancers there are. I mean, my research was focused on um, that as well. And it is true that cancer, you know, we named cancers for the places in that they were in your body. And we're, our science is way beyond what that is. You know, that's, there's no such thing as breast cancer, not really. There are a bunch of different types of cancer that happen or start perhaps in the breast. So it's, it's a change in language that the science community sort of doesn't quickly enough do, you know, doesn't quickly enough adapt for the general public. And science is moving much faster a lot of times than the general public can keep up with. And so they do need simple, simple, simple. And we're not going to be able to give the complicated answer. I mean, you can, you can try, um, but it's not going to come across, you know, they're not going to get it. Um, so as we talked about today, education, first of all, for a more scientifically literate uh, general population would be really good. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then hopefully those, those types of people, you know, those people would understand better your, your point. Yeah. And on that note, if mm -hmm. on the question of science education, I yeah. folks will join us and move down the hall mm -hmm. where uh, Caitlin Raynaud put the deck before us. There's some moving down the hall, some reserved. I think one thing that we'd be especially interested in hearing was from students um, about the kinds of ways in which your general science education on this campus is preparing you for this particular problem. Are you being prepared to engage a world in which people believe that climate change is not happening? Not valid, yep. It is. So again, I hope you'll um, uh, join me in thanking uh, Stacey for taking the time to be with us. Thank you.